This is a Suno India production and you are listening to 1 in 20,000. Welcome to a brand new episode of 1 in 20,000. I am your host Samantika and today we will be chatting with Dr. Dipanjana Datta, a genetic counsellor and a volunteer with the organization for rare diseases in India. But before we dive in on the medical aspect of things, I'd like you to hear a message from one of our listeners. Thank you so much for this heartwarming note. This has been an amazing podcast to hear because you get to see a side of our society which you know most people are generally either they will look at people who need special accesses with pity or they do not care and then the last episode that i heard was so touching where mr zia discusses his experience of raising a son with a rare disease it just shows such such immense spirit such courage and support and love that is the kind of uh, support we sh- do need right now from humanity it was an amazing episode thank you so much for bringing good content to us we love to hear every episode so um why why genetics dipanjana what is the relation between genetics and rare diseases so uh the, the when we let's break this question down because there are probably three questions over here uh one is what is uh, rare diseases so rare diseases are those diseases which are not commonly seen like it's not the common cold cough or you know the normal appendicitis or whatever like you know the reasons why we crowd the opds rare diseases are those which are not often seen by a doctor in um, a, a, a opd or in a hospital scenario and if we are looking at numbers these numbers anything which uh, has an incidence of more than 1 in 2000 this is something which we call as rare it means that if we screen 2000 people one person is going to get that and that's the lower limit of rare diseases normally there are rare diseases which are like 1 in 60000 like if we screen 60000 individual one individual gets it uh, most of these numbers are region specific so uh, in a layman's term the way i would explain it is rare diseases are those diseases which are not commonly encountered by the doctor now as you can see that majority of these rare diseases like 80% more than 80% of these rare diseases have a genetic background uh that is why the this link of genetics with rare diseases has been the association has been so strong now uh if we break up genetics also there genetics can be either de novo or it can be something which is heritable when we say de novo it means that when an egg makes a sperm it's a perfectly healthy egg and a perfectly healthy sperm it forms a embryo and from this embryo which is almost a single cell a multicellular organism or a multicellular human being is formed anything can go wrong over here 
So if something goes wrong beyond the point of the embryo formation till the multicellular organism is formed, this is something which we call as a de novo or spontaneously acquired change. But sometimes in most of the cases, there are cases where this is heritable, which means it comes from the family, from the generations of the family. There may be family, generations of the family who are asymptomatic, who do not have a clinical manifestation or do not have a clinical, uh, you know, uh, symptom of what we are seeing in the patient, but still carry these genes in a hidden way. Uh, if I again try to explain that, it means that, you know, these, the, all these genes are in pairs in humans because there are 46 chromosomes and these 46 chromosomes which sort of bear the genetic material or the blueprint of life are in pairs so there are 23 pairs of these chromosomes and uh, each of the 23 when the child is born 23 is received from the father and the 23 comes from the mother now since the father and the mother has these uh, genes in uh, pairs there may be one good copy and one copy which is a variant or a you know sort of a bad or a mutant copy i'm i'm curious because you spoke about um, genetic counseling and also genetic tests and how there is a perception among parents that these tests might be expensive so is that the case though and are genetic tests um, available readily for parents to access what is the entire process like uh, genetic testing right now is available in india depending on the type of test the affordability uh, comes in so there are tests which are uh, on the cheaper side and which covers a lot of diseases like the newborn screening or the prenatal screening these tests right now affordable and they are quite uh, no i will not say non expensive but on the lower side of expense because if you're comparing this with a normal blood sugar test or a normal uh, you know hemoglobin test these are definitely more costly but then there are tests when we are talking about uh, you know the the gene sequencing or a specific panel testing these testings are obviously more costly or if you are talking about a chromosomal um, array, like, you know, chromosomal analysis, these testings are costly. Sometimes uh, many families are unable to afford it. But then the necessity uh, is there uh, at times to do all these testing. Uh, the good part is that most of these testings are right now being conducted in India itself. And if it is being conducted here, then it means that the prices would go down. And uh, that's a hope we have because we have to start somewhere. At least the tests which were not available even five years back are right now. All the tests are available over here. And it's done being done by companies which are doing it globally. So the quality of these testings are also as good as what you can get internationally. Uh, Regarding the affordability, I would again say it depends on the test. And sometimes uh, we as genetic counselors or clinicians try to break down the test so that minimum tests are done. But uh, it's always not the case. Sometimes sometimes three members in the family have to be tested. So there, it, 
financially it does become an impediment for these families to do that also there is a social tax uh, i have had families from uh, you know places i wouldn't say rural area but uh, you know cities as well where uh, they feel that if a family member is identified of a genetic uh, disorder and confirmed then it's not good for them and their family in the society so there is a lot of psychological impediment to these tests as well um and how long does it take usually because i think medicines takes uh, medicines take years to develop so, yeah when we are talking about medicines the thing is that there can be two kinds of uh, you know uh, therapy which is given one is uh, where when we are talking about gene variations we are talking about uh, say an enzyme is missing because of the gene mutations or gene variations and we just supplement it so this is what happens in enzyme replacement theory as uh, therapy as we see it in gosher's fabries or gm1 or uh, even uh, pompey's disease you know so uh, this kind of thing exists and uh, the enzymes first have to be tried as animal studies to see toxicity then they have to uh, go through phase 1 trial where you administer it in very small number of human beings who you register for a trial after after seeing and following them up that there is no side effects uh, then you go into phase 2 where you have a, a more number of people in that trial and after that when there is again no side effects you actually sort of there might be a few side effects where and you actually risk is benefits and if the benefits is more than this drug would be ultimately approved after the phase 3 trial which means in the phase 3 trial a, a huge lot of uh, individuals would be registered and if the therapy works then it's accepted this is for enzyme replacement therapies but this is also true for gene therapies as well uh the problem with gene therapies is that it is very personalized because every person will not have the same kind of gene variations or gene mutations this means that a uh, genetic diagnosis has to be made and whatever therapy has to be there has to be personalized for that particular person now in this scenario what happens is that as i said you know animal studies toxicity studies becomes very difficult and this is the main impediment in a disease research because the ethics comes in uh, would you administer even if you have the uh, you know means in your hand you cannot go and administer a human being because you don't know what the side effects are so as i said in rare disease the main problem is that the numbers uh, the crispr cas system the crispr cas system is basically a self correcting system where uh, if you introduce it it will correct the gene uh, uh, variant and uh, and it, and we are expecting that whatever damage has been done will remain but then it will not proceed uh, in this case uh, what is happening right now uh, is that though people are very hopeful about it people are also worried about off target effects means that if you introduce a, such a system it will correct the system which you want but will it also not correct or will it also create other kinds of problem will you have cancer because of this will you have other toxicity because of this because of this would your uh, you know where you were given a life span of 10 years would you just have a life span of 1 year so 
these particular questions are now being answered as far as the research scenario is concerned though we are very hopeful for a gene therapy for a personalized gene medicines to come up but i feel it will still take time this part was that uh, what i wanted to say was that research is there we are very hopeful you know something will come out but there are uh, ethical issues which need to be addressed and there are global bodies which are sort of uh, looking at this uh, there are toxicity issues there are also issues which are like off target issues that it is correcting something right now but is it It, will it create more chaos in the person which we are not understanding at present so uh, so 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 the the other part being that the rare disease we don't have too many patients for one particular disease so here the role of parent association groups also comes in where you if you have such parent association you know the, the groups they can come in and they can actually you know raise these questions and help the scientists answer these questions in their own ways because then the ethical part or the other other details gets much easier so it's it's quite overwhelming to hear about um, the complexities of the human body most of us um, grow up thinking that uh, the human body is the same in the norm uh, which means that basically all of us lo- almost uh, will follow a certain trajectory but listen to you it's not the case at all that is uh, it's a sad part because uh, with cancer right now there is much clarity but with rare diseases the clarity is right now not there as far as the clinicians are concerned uh, as far as the scientists are concerned the variability of the phenotype like which by this i what i mean is that a person have same kind of genetic variation but the symptoms can be very different in two individuals having the same uh, genetic variations so in these cases right now they are saying there are modifiers or demodifiers de- but you see the bottom line is that what we understand is very less and that is where the clarity not there hence it is very complicated also as you very correctly pointed out through our discussions that a rare disease can happen anytime it's not necessary that it will be from the birth or it's not necessary it will be from 5 uh, years or 10 years there are many cases where the regression occurs like uh, the child is all well but then the child uh, you know comes down in a wheelchair and almost lying so the trauma a family faces and uh, what a family goes through is uh, huge so the researchers are working but then we also have you know issues which uh, i guess are right now being ironed out but still it's a long way ahead yes indeed uh, here i would just point our listeners to the last episode with mr Z- uh, zia who uh, who's a parent of uh, a son with the rare disease and he spoke uh, exactly what you you pointing to that uh, rare disease are one of those things which are quite traumatic to families and uh, coping with the rare disease as well as the medical angle which is the treatment going to doctors knowing what it is about being misdiagnosed 
then perhaps being diagnosed, then continuing on with the treatment is one part. The second part, which uh, in the conversation you did mention, was the uh, social part, um, where a lot many families may not be um, open to a child with a rare condition and around them. And as a genetic counselor, uh, I would I would be very interested uh, to hear your perspective on how do you deal with such cases then? Uh, and here by cases, I mean medical cases, because humans can't ever be cases, right? But just the medical part is one thing, but the but 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 a child's life it's it's the question of a child's life or is the it's a question of a person's life. So how do you deal with cases where families uh, are are not accepting of the diagnosis or not even accepting of going in for a genetic test? So yeah, there are many families who are resistant to a genetic test. You know, let me put it that way. And there are many families who have. A genetic test but then they are not ready to accept it that way uh, and let me tell you it's irrespective of the education status what I see so there uh, if, if again I try to explain there are many social uh, you know obligations and social uh, ethical things which a genetic counselor has to face while counseling these are one of them so here we more or less stress on the management part. So see if uh, the it's a process of acceptance. It might not happen at one go. Uh, as a genetic counselor, you have to be patient for these cases. In most of the cases, when you understand that, uh, you know, this might be the case, but then the family is not is resistant you still ask the family to go for the at least the management, maybe not the diagnosis part, but the management part. Management over here involves multidisciplinary team. Sometimes a cardiologist, a pulmonologist, a pediatrician, or maybe, uh, you know, a neurologist. So uh, what uh, your diagnosis is one part because sometimes uh, families are very happy to find that closure. Sometimes families are resistant towards it. But at the same time, you will not, uh, you know, stop the management or stop improving the quality. Like I say, there are many patients who come and say uh, the drug is available, but it is so expensive. I cannot give my child. But then my question is, why not by the time the drug becomes affordable? Why not increase them? You know, why not give the child a good lifestyle by doing the standard of care protocols? There are many diseases where the standard of care protocols are available. And if followed, then the child's uh, life quality increases uh, greatly and actually reduces uh, a bit of the suffering. Also, at the same time, I always, uh, you know, try and counsel patients for a psychological counseling. This is very much needed for a family who has a diagnosis or uh, has been suspected of rare disease. It's not easy. It's not at all easy. Uh, it's not easy on many levels. It's not easy first to accept that my child has such a problem and might not survive after a point. It's not easy to accept that why me? It is not easy as a person to accept that my child has got this because I have something in me. 
so these are not very easy things and these are not one day things so uh, if a parent or uh, if family is resistant the first thing we stress is the management the child needs a medical uh, you know uh, intervention so interventions are what we try to provide first and once the interventions are going on the parent starts having a communication with the doctors the doctors also try to convince and let them understand that see if a genetic diagnosis is done we can work more on the management part uh sometimes in many cases families agree after a certain point of time because there is these five stages of grief which every family goes through and sometimes after that they sort of you know agree for a genetic diagnosis sometimes it's financial they say and we uh try to fundraise it uh, but there is also a social issue to it there are many diseases which are uh exlinked which means uh the mother of the child might be responsible for this disease because uh females have two exes and they might not have the disease while the male child uh if receives that variant uh, that bad ex from the mother would have, have it and these are social taboos because if you say that to families they will undergo a divorce or they will uh, just put this mother back in her father's house and the whole family will break so these are very crucial cases while you cannot withhold information you also have to sensitize the family so there are cases where the parent feels that if one of my child gets diagnosed of a genetic disorder then my other child i will not be able to place him in the society or my other child will not be able to have a uh, have married life or something so uh, these doesn't happen one day sometimes families irrespective of education status or irrespective uh, irrespective of their uh, you know uh, profile uh, you need two or three visits you need convincing you need a lot of talking uh, for them to understand why it is necessary uh, and many families do agree but yes initially there is a resistance and sometimes families who get detected also they are very scared because of the social uh, trauma so i guess as a society also if we are a bit open and a bit compassionate um you know if our mindset changes a bit uh, that also helps these families who have been diagnosed of the disease that's a very 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 important point that uh, um in in our daily course of life somehow uh, we might not uh, know that a person is a rare disease patient or um a person has a loved one who has a rare disease just um for i think um, uh, because uh, this is this is a medical podcast in in the sense that we are talking about medical jargon i just like to say that sme is spinal muscular atrophy and it affects the muscular system uh which means that yes. sometimes sometimes children or even adults whoever um is diagnosed with sme is not able to uh function uh properly in terms of their hands or their legs spinal muscular atrophy is a problem where with proximal muscle weaknesses what happens is that the muscles which are closer to our trunk you know closer to our torso um gets affected 
and uh, they cannot move these muscles so they cannot raise their arms or raise their thighs they can move down from the knees but cannot raise their thighs from the hip and they have severe spinal uh, they might have severe spinal uh, uh, sort of bending which we call as scoliosis uh, they even have problem breathing uh because uh, you know their lung capacity is uh, not there because of the muscle weakness who cannot breathe properly who cannot cry loudly so uh, it, it's it's really uh, heartbreaking to see at like sort of gradually in a child uh, you know you see the symptoms around 7 8 years so you had a child who was absolutely healthy for 2 years 3 years 4 years and then suddenly you are seeing this kind of a muscle weakness it's uh, it's heartbreaking uh, that's the sort of uh, sad part you know where you cannot really help but here in these cases if you actually have proper management if you actually go through all the tests of a pulmonologist and a cardiologist and a neurologist so it sort of somewhere ensures your child has a better life quality than not being treated at all there are guidelines which can be followed and uh, most times these guidelines are shared by the pediatrician to the parent and uh, sometimes the parent association groups also have these kind of guidelines where they can train other mothers after the pediatrician has briefed them so that really helps uh, because most of the uh, parent association groups follow this and this actually increases uh, the lifestyle a lot like uh, it it is really really helpful in this case right my last question would be and uh, i know that we covered uh, the genetic part extensively as well as uh, rare diseases in children but what about adults i think in rare diseases uh, a common statistic that uh, we have is that 80% of rare diseases occur in children in childhood so uh, that's an estimate so but what if uh, A, a, an adult is diagnosed by a rare disease uh, what happens then as a genetic counselor what how do you counsel such people i'll again tell you a story which um, sort of breaks my heart to say so i had a patient who was um, in the mid 40s he was a computer scientist so he used to uh, type a lot and the first thing he felt was that he had muscle weaknesses and he couldn't type gradually uh, he lost everything all his uh, motor functions and um, he was bound in a wheelchair he had a life where he had his wife and uh, son his wife was uh, got scared and uh, she was unable to take this from him because he was the sole bread earner and uh, she uh, not to be judgmental but she left him with the son uh, now this parent uh, this this adult who was supporting the whole family uh, was looked after by octogenarian parents now the main problem over here comes to that you know these parents also cannot support the child the 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 adult because uh, number one financially number two the amount of care that needs to be taken for this particular uh, adult uh, is uh, not physically possible for a octogenarian parent so here as far as the diagnosis goes it's the same as what we do in uh, 
child we go through the same kind of procedures we go through there are same kind of standard of managements there but see as a child it's easier because you have a parents and your parents are not octogenarian they are also in their mid 20s 30s they are able to take care but here it's an adult and we sometimes really have no answers when they say that they have nobody to look after in west there are homes where you can put these child but unfortunately india does not have that uh, those kind of homes uh, and this becomes a major challenge because financially they might be the bread bread uh, you know earners and they have lost everything uh, we can what as as clinicians or as genetic counselors we can counsel them but we cannot go into the social uh, support which they need again i would repeat here ngos and societies need to think about these uh, people and also these people have a lot of mental trauma because they were leading a life which was norm supposed like you know i will just quote unquote normal and suddenly they have to live with uh, a, a particular thing which they cannot accept and here the acceptance is uh, you know like more difficult than in a child because normally the child as it's it's difficult for the parents to accept but the child is fine the child does not understand the child is okay because the child has it from the birth the child does not know or the child understands that okay i have a problem the child, children are more open but as adults you are more closed so here the major issue is men, is is the mental health and also the social support which uh, we in most cases are unable to provide uh, if we are looking from the clinical side and that becomes an impediment also indeed and uh, which brings me to the question uh why are we not being able to support fellow humans as a society and i don't mean this as a moral judgment but i just mean in terms of the facts of the situation now this can happen to anybody at any point in their life so why is the discussion so limited thank you so much for a very very insightful conversation um it has been a delight talking to you and uh, your inputs and your feedback from the field from day to day looking at patients and not just patients that's just one part of their life but what you touched on is something more comprehensive and holistic that they are real people these are stories of real people who are operating in the real world they have the same kind of uh, issues and challenges to deal with but at the same time it is so heartening to see that they also have people like you uh, who are supporting them and uh, who are creating that safety net um, and and being able to sort of um, helping them not just survive but thrive so thank you so much for this conversation thank you so much for having me here and uh, i would just end with one word first think you are very lucky to be functional and second be compassionate uh, somewhere uh, they don't actually need sympathy but they just need you as a friend as a companion and consider them as humans and not as patients
This podcast has been produced by Sono India, artwork by Priyanka Kumar and music by Augustus Henry. As independent producers, we rely on you to deliver content that matters. So do log on to our Patreon page to contribute and keep us going.